This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in the hour, we'll talk about the huge victories that Black Lives Matter won at the polls in L.A. County, starting with electing a progressive district attorney, George Gascon, Jody Armour, the USC law professor and Black Lives Matter activist, will comment. And our TV critic, Ella Taylor, will talk about Collective, a terrific documentary about corruption in Romania that's won lots of prizes and now will be available as video on demand. But first, our Trump Watch political update with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect. We reached him today at home in our nation's capital. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, it's been five days since Biden was declared the victory, and today is another day when Donald Trump stays in the headlines, another day when he makes Democrats anxious and angry, which, of course, seems to be his principal purpose in life right now. And he is succeeding by refusing to acknowledge the inevitable that Joe Biden will become president on January 20th. But some of our friends worry that somehow he will succeed at blocking Biden through the courts or maybe by creating a national emergency or mobilizing the military or by having the Republican legislature of Pennsylvania deliver a slate of Trump electors to replace the Biden electors chosen by the voters. Do you think Biden will take the oath of office on January 20th? I do. And I think it will be administered by Chief Justice John Roberts, which will further, uh, you know, enhance if as though there were any question the legitimacy of his taking it. I really can't foresee the courts upholding uh, any of the somewhat ridiculous challenges that uh, uh, the Trump administration is concocting. And I think concocting is the word. And, uh, you know, I think the Pennsylvania legislature uh, will have some trouble if they do that, since Biden's margin in the state is well into six figures. You know, that's that—that's as it were, a level of chutzpah, which uh, I don't think elected officials uh, really have. Uh, you know, I mean, you can't, you know, if, if it were... Uh, 140 votes or 14 votes instead of 140,000 votes, that would be one thing, but it's 140,000. My understanding of this scheme to have that we've read so much about of having state legislatures sent in their own slates as happened in the disputed election of 1876 was the last time this happened. Uh, but here's the thing. It's true that state legislatures can decide how to pick the state's electors. But once they've decided that the voters will elect the slate of electors, they can't change their minds afterwards because they don't like the outcome. Pennsylvania could have changed its law before the election and said, voters aren't going to get to pick our president anymore. We're, we're going to do it ourselves. I doubt that would be very popular with the citizens of Pennsylvania, but they have decided, like every other state, to leave it up to the voters. And you know, when you vote, you don't vote direct. We don't have direct election of the president. You'd vote for the electors pledged to, and that's what they did in every state in America. 
And that's that's what has to happen. They could change it for the next time around, but the law is clear on this one. I don't think there's any way they could they could get away with this. Yeah, and I don't think any courts would uphold that, but for the reasons you just cited, uh, I, I think uh, the courts wouldn't even hold a hearing. They would just dismiss the Pennsylvania uh, legislature does that. The courts would just instantly reject it. So how do you explain the failure of all Republican senators except for three to acknowledge Biden's victory? Fear of uh, Trump voters primarily and fear of Trump himself secondarily. And, and, this, and this, this relates to the future of the Republican Party, which the future of both parties is very much in play now and very much under discussion. Uh, since Trump did get 71 million votes, he, he does bring out a kind of voter who normally either doesn't vote or votes Republican. Uh, and uh, they run a risk, you know, so long as uh, Fox News uh, primetime, as distinct from Fox News not primetime, is, is banging, uh, you know, the election fraud drums. Uh, they run a risk of, of offending uh, those voters, and they're afraid of primaries and, uh, and so on. So I, I think in a larger sense, that is a reason why Republicans will not revert to the old norm uh, of their old uh, policies and uh, you know, respect for democracy. Now, once all of the court challenges are rejected, uh, they will be more or less compelled at that point to acknowledge Biden's victory. Uh, but right now, there's an interesting uh, sort of global united front of, of Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy and the congressional Republicans and the world's autocrats who, uh, unlike uh, the leaders of the world's democracies, have refused to acknowledge Biden's victory of Vladimir Putin uh, Xi Jinping, uh, Kim Jong-un, and... Uh, uh, All of our favorites. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Moscow Mitch is back among us. This is, <laughs> this is the uh, autocrat international, uh, which is not the international for which the song was written. Right. Yeah, I, let's, let me just emphasize 71 million votes, Trump's total, is far more than any other presidential candidate with in American history, with one exception, Joe Biden, who got 76 million, but far more than any Republican has ever gotten. He's the most successful Republican candidate in American history. And that counts for something with every other Republican. It sure does. It sure does. By the way, when all the votes are counted, particularly in California, which always comes in last, I think Biden's total will go to 77 million. Uh, I think he'll uh, have a, a popular vote lead over Trump of somewhere between five and six million votes uh, when all the votes are counted. Not that that counts in the American electoral system. God forbid. God forbid. Uh, we, we believe in one person, one vote. Uh, what a hor horrific concept. But yes, I think the sheer weight of Trump's numbers uh, is a real, uh, the primary factor in Republicans deciding what they should do now and where they should go in the long term. I mean, the most impressive, surprising, amazing thing about this election is the turnout on both sides, that it is so much bigger than last time. I mean, it's sort of 
uh, dismaying to us that Trump would increase his margin by, what, about five million votes. There were a lot of people who didn't vote last time who turned out to vote for one or the other candidate, and five million of them wanted <coughs> wanted Trump. And I think that may be what screwed up the polls, actually. The polls are interested in who's the likely voter, and people who didn't vote in the past are determined by the pollsters to be unlikely to vote. Five million more people voted for Trump, and that threw the polls off. That is my humble opinion. Your comment. Well, I mean, a lot of people who didn't vote before more uh, voted for Biden, uh, and yet yeah. the polls registered that. So it's not just that. It's, I think, also the fact that uh, people voting for Biden were distinctly more willing to talk to pollsters than people uh, voting for Trump, particularly, you know, uh, the Trump voters who uh, normally don't vote and aren't integrated that well into the electoral system might be particularly reticent when it comes to talking to pollsters. Uh, you mentioned Fox News. Uh, they seem to be torn, maybe even in turmoil about what to do about this. Fox News has been calling Biden the president-elect since Saturday, and that seems hugely important. Uh, they cut away uh, from the White House spokesperson when she started talking about election fraud, something they don't usually do to the White House spokesman. On the other hand, some of the celebrities in primetime, as you say, are pushing the, the electoral fraud uh, line. Um, it seems like the executives of Fox News think they will still have an audience uh, once Biden is in the White House. I wonder if you agree. I, I do agree. And all of this we can lay uh, to uh, Rupert Murdoch's pragmatism. He understands that uh, Biden will be elected and the news side, for lack of a better word, of, uh, of Fox News, perhaps personified by uh, uh, Chris Wallace, you know, is, is basically uh, within the reality-based community, as it were. But uh, to still rev up uh, Fox viewers' engines, uh, you have uh, Tucker Carlson and uh, Sean Hannity sp still spouting uh, the Trump line. Uh, although they, Carlson at least, has said that, you know, if the challenges come forth and are uh, proved, not proved to be genuine, then we have to reluctantly acknowledge Joe Biden's election. But no, I mean, historically, historically, uh, media outlets in our historic time period yes. do better when they are uh, in opposition and railing at the idiots who are in control of government. So uh, I, I, I think Murdoch is uh, sort of splitting the difference at Fox because uh, he sees uh, that both of these paths that, that Fox is following will lead to uh, even higher revenues. And uh, the Wall Street Journal, another Murdoch uh, enterprise, which has a very different audience from Fox News, says on its editorial page that Biden won the election. Wall Street seems to be content with Biden as president, as long as Republicans control the Senate and the stock market is way up and the Wall Street Journal is not complaining. Uh, have I got that one right? You've got that one right. And even the New York Post, uh, Murdoch's publication for a non-Wall Street Journal readership, uh, has acknowledged uh, Biden's victory. Uh, but I think uh, he sees it uh, important 
that the uh, Fox News primetime commentators still wave the Trump flag as a way of of holding uh, all of uh, the people who watch and believe those those folks. And and Sean Hannity has actually been part of the Trump campaign. He's appeared at uh, Trump rallies and you know, as a close advisor personally to Trump, uh, Tucker Carlson is mentioned as a possible Republican candidate uh, in four years. So these guys are uh, part part of the Republican Party. Uh, it's, well, I, think it's fair I mean, but there, there has been uh, a close relationship between most of Fox News, between the executives there, let us not forget Roger Ailes, yes. who began as a political consultant to Richard Nixon, uh, and, uh, and also at the, uh, uh, at the New York Post. Now, the guy at the New York Post stepped down the day after the election, uh, but you know, Fox News has been a feeder uh, of the White House staff. Uh, people go from one to the other. So that, that's there, that's established. Uh, that's no surprise, but uh, uh, but you know Murdoch knows which way the wind is blowing, and uh, it's it's blowing in a direction where he sees the, that the network can make even more money. Well, to change the subject here, uh, last week we talked about progressive victories in L.A. I understand there's some good news from San Francisco as well. Well, this is this is kind of my my niche uh, favorite. Uh, San Francisco uh, uh, voters went to the polls last week and enacted a, a proposal modeled after a law uh, that's been uh, passed some years ago in Portland, Oregon, the, which was uh, until San Francisco voters ratified it, the only such law. It adds a surtax uh, to businesses, to corporations doing business in San Francisco uh, that is um, linked to the ratio between what their CEOs make and what their median paid worker makes. Uh, and if it's, uh, if the CEO makes a hundred times what the median paid worker makes, uh, there's a 0.1% uh, surcharge added to that company's business tax in San Francisco. And if it's 200 times, it's 0.2 and so on. Now, you know, uh, at the moment, uh, and, and uh, by virtue of the Dodd-Frank Act, the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission calculates this every year. At the moment, the average CEO makes 320 times what his, because these guys are mainly men, uh, what his median paid worker makes. In the 1960s, uh, when the income tax was far more progressive and when unions had real power, it was about 20 to one. So it's gone from 20 to one to 320 to one. And oh. it's kind of outrageous. And the reason I'm particularly delighted about this was that the author of the original measure and uh, a city council member in Portland cold called me. I didn't even know they passed this thing. I didn't know it was even under consideration. Cole called me to tell me they had passed it in Portland, which was the model for what San Francisco did. And that he, uh, first, became, he first saw this proposal in a piece I had written uh, in the American Prospect in 2014. So, wow, uh, wow. So I, you know, and there's a second uh, uh, prospect, if I may, and this gets us back to Los Angeles. It's not an election result, but yesterday, uh, on Tuesday of this week, 
the Los Angeles uh, County Board of Supervisors enacted an ordinance uh, giving, essentially giving workers power to monitor the safety conditions in their workplace since the coronavirus has come around and to really blow the whistle and if needs be shut things down if it uh, doesn't uh, uh, meet uh, the satisfaction of uh, the, their third party group, their union, their collective, whatever. Uh, and this is a proposal that was first made by the uh, Dean of American Labor Historians, Nelson Lichtenstein, wow. professor at UC Santa Barbara, in the pages, or more accurately on the website of the American Prospect in April, it was uh, read by uh, the leaders of the, uh, s- uh, the local union of supermarket workers in Los Angeles, and they were the lead force lobbying the LA County Board of Supervisors. So we're, it, it, you know, this is this is sort of uh, to, to to quote uh, the uh, the the great union leader John L. Lewis: "He who tooteth not his own horn, the same uh, will not be tooted." Uh, so that's two victories for uh, ideas that that first appeared in the pages or on the websites of the American Prospect. And more to the point, uh, I, I think the San Francisco measure uh, it, it suggests, as does the Portland, that there is, uh, you know, a huge uh, and entirely justified disgust at, you know, excessive executive pay relative to what workers make. And let me just check with you. Are there any big corporations based in San Francisco that this will apply to? Well, you know, there are a few tech uh, uh, companies that we know that are uh, that are in that neck of the woods. And so even while the level of the tax surcharge is very low, uh, it's estimated that will it would bring in in its first year somewhere between 60 and 140 million bucks to San Francisco, uh, which like all cities right now uh, is desperate for funding. Uh, and so it, it's, uh, it's a big deal. I should also add that a bill doing this uh, that would have done this was introduced into the California state legislature a couple of years ago. It, it didn't go anywhere, but I, you know, I, I would hope someone would uh, reintroduce that bill now, uh, now that it's been enacted in one of California's largest cities. Last thing, just for a brief couple of minutes here, Georgia, there's a poll. The first poll is out by a Republican-leaning national firm about the two Senate runoffs in Georgia. Neither political party has a clear advantage, uh, according to this poll, uh, in the two Senate races. The one with uh, Republican Kelly Loeffler, the appointed and problematic uh, Republican candidate. She's at 49, and her challenger, Democrat Reverend Raphael Warnock, is at 48, uh, with a margin of error of 2.6, with 3% undecided. In the other race, the incumbent Senator David Perdue led Democratic challenger John Ossoff 50 to 46, with 4% undecided. The Democrats need both seats to get control of the Senate. Do you think the Democrats have any chance in Georgia? Yes, they have any chance in Georgia. Uh, I would not bet the mortgage. I would not bet the farm. I would not bet X, whatever X may be, uh, on their winning both seats, but they certainly have a chance, and it's not that remote a chance. Uh, It all depends on turnout. It depends on voter mobilization. 
you know, we shall see. This is a state which uh, uh, Joe Biden appears to have carried by 14,000 votes. So, at, you know, it can be done under the right circumstances. Uh, the, the one thing I would bet anything on is that this will be these will both be very close elections. Harold Meyerson, he tooteth his own horn and <laughs> we do, too. Thank you, Harold. Always great to have you on the show. Great to be here, John. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Now it's time to talk about progressive victories in the elections in Los Angeles, the biggest county in the nation with 10 million people. For that, we turn to Jody Armour. He's the Roy Crocker Professor of Law at USC. He's been all over the media talking about protests and Black Lives Matter on NBC, CBS, ABC, MSNBC, the NPR stations here in L.A., Now he's got a new book out. It's on race, language, unequal justice, and the law. Jody Armour, welcome back. And tell us the title of your new book. Great to be back with you, John. In asterisk, GGA theory, a.k.a. nigga theory. (laughs) And we got into a good conversation about that bloodstained epithet earlier. So, you know, um, we'll, we'll come back to it another time. So, L.A. County... 10 million people has elected a new district attorney, George Gascon. He got 54% of the vote. Tell us why this is important. It's monumental. It's jaw dropping. If you asked me 10 years ago, if a moment like this was possible in 2020, I would have bet my house on it not being possible, uh, uh, John. That is how really a foundational the shift has been over the last five or six years in a number of cities from traditional prosecutors to progressive prosecutors. And George Gascon is in the mold of a progressive prosecutor. One of the first times I heard of it, I thought it was an oxymoron, contradiction in terms, made no sense to me uh, before I brought Larry Krasner out here to talk to my class from Philadelphia. He was elected to the DA, head DA position there. He has an office of 300 DAs, um, having never prosecuted a case in his life, only been a public defender and defense attorney and running on the following platform in cash bail, in police misconduct and address mass incarceration. And he got 75% of the electorate to support for him, to, to, to support him in the general election. Chase Boudin up in San Francisco, also a progressive prosecutor, also uh, coming from a public defender background, but the biggest crown, the biggest jewel, the crown jewel in the whole uh, criminal justice movement when it comes to progressive prosecutors by far is the LA office. It's by far the largest DA's office. It has 1,200 prosecutors who are gonna report to Gascon. And the policies that come out of your office fundamentally shape what criminal justice looks like, how full the prisons are, how full the jails are, who's tried um, for um, capital punishment, Everything turns on the prosecutor. It's the linchpin of mass incarceration. And this is a major, major breakthrough. The campaign in Los Angeles to replace the previous district attorney, Jackie Lacey, 
was initiated by Black Lives Matter. They have been working on... How, how long has Black Lives Matter been demonstrating outside Jackie Lacey's office? Three years, every Wednesday, you know, week in, week out. And John, what's so remarkable is Black Lives Matter really blew up as a national movement and became, you know, kind of generational in its scope and ambitions around 2014, 15, 16. There was quite a bit of media coverage. Then the media went away and the activists kept on though organizing. They kept the infrastructure developing. They build more sinews of connection. So even though the cameras weren't there, they were meeting for three years, for example, in a row every Wednesday outside uh, Jackie Lacey's office. And then when the Floyd, George Floyd protests erupted, they were able to get on that infrastructure to ride that infrastructure that was already in place. And so, all those six weeks of the streets roiling with protesters translated into ballot box victories for criminal justice reform. There were probably two main issues people were in the streets about over the summer, John, and both of them, the voters, and both, both sets of issues, the voters of LA heard them loud and clear. The genius of Black Lives Matter is the way they've been able to bring together protest and politics. They've been out in the streets for years, uh, but they've also worked very hard over the last season to get people to vote. Usually organizations do one or the other, and a lot of the more cautious liberals in our world argue that all this street action and all the talk about defunding the police would hurt the effort to bring reform to the district attorney's office. What do you say to these critics now? Yeah, well, defund the police is actually... The message was heard by the voters to the extent that they voted in Measure J, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But also the, the voters of L.A. heard them on Proposition 20 in California, which was an effort to retrench. That is to take back Proposition 47 gains, which had taken a lot of felonies down to misdemeanors. Proposition 20 was a, an effort to get rid of those uh, gains and, and to return those misdemeanors to felonies. And the voters of California rejected that. They gave voting rights to all people who are not now in prison with the um, Proposition 17. So in many ways, they heard loud and clear what uh, the marchers were saying about criminal justice reform. And you know what? Even when it came to systemic racism, which was the other matter they were marching about, there was systemic racism on the ballot in the form of Proposition 16, the affirmative action proposition. And that was going beyond criminal justice and saying, let's get at systemic racism more broadly through this tool of affirmative action. Most Californians did not go along with that, but most Angelinos did. And most San Franciscans, most of the urban centers, they did um, vote in favor of that systemic response to racism. So the marchers in the street had an enormous impact on how we think about both criminal justice reform and systemic racism. One of the first things that George Gascon did after his opponent conceded was to meet with Black Lives Matter and the families of victims of police shootings. Why is that so significant? It's critically important because the former DA, the outgoing DA, um, refused to make those kinds of gestures to show that you feel the pain and the suffering and understand the loss of victims of police shootings, whether even if those shootings um, are questionable 
and we, they still have to be resolved. One thing we know for sure, when a police officer shoots a private citizen, that's not just a private citizen shooting another private citizen. That is the state shooting that private citizen. That is America shooting that private citizen. One of the things that Charlie Beck said at a police commission meeting I was at a while ago was that if you attack a police officer, you attack America. And I said, okay, Charlie Beck, police uh, chief Beck, I accept that uh, proposition, that logic. By the same token, when a police officer attacks an unarmed black person, that's not just a private individual attacking that person. That is America attacking that unarmed black person. That's America shooting Walter Scott in the back six times. That's America choking Eric Garner to death. And that's America with his knee on George Floyd's neck. You don't get to be America when you're a victim, but you get to be treated just like an ordinary citizen or you wanna be when you're a victimizer. And so that is, you know, that kind of shift is really what we're seeing um, happening uh, in the street. I wanna ask about George Gascon's priorities. What's at the top of his agenda? At the top of George Gascon's agenda has to be number one, changing fundamentally how we think about blame and punishment when it comes to ordinary citizens so that we don't, we move away from retribution, retaliation, and revenge, which is the moral framework that prosecutors' offices have been embracing for the last 30 or 40 years, and look toward a moral framework, a moral compass that says we're going to zero in on restoration, rehabilitation, redemption, right, and try to find alternatives to the punitive, retributive response to misconduct, to oftentimes social problems that arise out of criminogenic conditions like poverty. And so uh, most importantly, he has talked throughout the election campaign about recognizing the need to engage in that fundamental shift in perspective, that kind of fundamental shift in the moral compass that you use to approach crime and punishment issues. So starting there, but then more practically, right off the bat, ending capital punishment prosecutions. You know, Jackie Lacey was continuing to prosecute people uh, on cap for capital punishment, um, even though Gavin Newsom, the governor, has a moratorium on capital punishment in, in, the, in the state, and the voters of L.A. have voted against capital punishment when it's been on the ballot. The state hasn't, but the people of L.A. have, but she was going the other direction, so he's going to end capital punishment right off the bat, um, which is an important symbolic and substantive move to make, and then really think about seriously police accountability, because he knows one of the reasons he's there is because Jackie Lacey seemed to be very reluctant to bring um, criminal prosecutions against police officers, even when there was damning video evidence, like um, in Marlene Pinnock's case, the woman who was beaten on the side of the road and videotaped, and we all saw the videotape, but Jackie Lacey's office said, no, it's not sufficient evidence to raise a tribal issue of fact. So he'll have to grapple with those kinds of accountability questions when it comes to police misconduct, and he's going to be under a lot of scrutiny. And there's one other thing that he's talked about. He promises that he will prosecute environmental crimes. And he says, environmental justice is racial justice. What exactly does that mean? Yeah, environmental justice is racial justice and how we think about crimes is so important. He's shining a light on that, right? There are, if you go in and you take a loaf of bread, you can wind up in jail for years 
But if you defraud your customers or people you're lending money to, it seems like you can just fail upwards and 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 actually enjoy a, a even better uh, lifestyle. So what he's saying is we're going to go after those environmental crimes that cause as much harm, if not more oftentimes than street crime because of all the cancers, all the morbidity, all of the mortality that comes from environmental toxins that are being poured in the environment and and violation of the law, but the violators aren't being held accountable. And those, those sites of, and, um, of pollution are disproportionately close near in proximity to minority neighborhoods. That's where the environmental racial justice piece comes in. Um, you know, those lives are seen as more expendable by policymakers. So they allow factories and other, you know, kinds of units that spew a lot of uh, toxins and pollutants to locate near those neighborhoods. And he's talking about going after those uh, folks and holding them accountable. Now we need to talk about L.A. County Proposition J. Kind of a boring name, but kind of a big idea. You said a moment ago, this is a part of defunding the police. It got 57% of the vote in L.A. County. This is about shifting resources away from the police. Tell us what it will do. Yeah, really interesting. At a time when nationally there's a debate about whether defund the police costs politician seats um, nationally, here you see voters getting behind a proposition aimed explicitly at reallocating resources away from incarceration and carceral responses and toward alternatives uh, like mental health, social services, job interventions, housing interventions. They want 10% of the budget. And we're talking about a budget that's upwards of, of unrestricted county funds. So of those unrestricted county funds, we're talking about upwards of eight, $9 billion. So 10% Ooh. of that is not peanuts. All right. And it's going towards alternatives to incarceration. They're saying what the people in the streets were saying all through the summer is we need to rethink public safety. Public safety isn't just do we apprehend people who commit crimes uh, at the back end, but do we spend on health and housing and schooling so that people don't turn to crime in the first place. You can prevent crime by lifting people out of criminogenic conditions. And that's what this proposition is aimed at doing. Statewide, we have been worried for a long time about the power of the police unions and the prison guards unions. They have been one, the biggest enemy, really, of meaningful reform, criminal justice. But statewide voters defeated the initiative put forward by the police unions and the prison guards, Prop 20, defeated it big, 62 to 38. You mentioned this a moment ago, but let's just go back and see what were the police unions and the prison guards pushing for and what did the voters refuse to go along with? Yeah, what does it say, John, that the voters were so far ahead of the lawmakers on these criminal justice reform issues? What it says is that the lawmakers are beholden to a lot of law enforcement interests. Those campaign contributions, they gave seven to $10 million to Jackie Lacey's campaign, for example, law enforcement interests. And so it's, it's telling that the voters are so far ahead of the lawmakers on these issues. Proposition 20 was an effort to, again, take something the voters had decided on. That is that we need to take felonies and knock a lot of them down to misdemeanors 
if they involve low level, nonviolent property crimes like shoplifting and the like, we don't need to be treating a lot of those as felonies, rather as misdemeanors. Let's ratchet them down. And law enforcement interests were saying, you know, making apocalyptic predictions about how all, you know, hell was going to break loose if we did that. And it didn't happen. The voters of California looked at it, listened to their rhetoric and rejected retrenchment on criminal justice reform in Proposition 20. So it was across the board, John, a jaw dropping victory for progressives and criminal justice reform at the local level. And in marked contrast to what you see going on at the national level, when, you know, um, Joe Biden was asked to defund the police, he said 300 million more dollars for the, the police. You know, nothing fundamentally will change. Rather than that kind of politics, you saw a very different kind of politics play out here at the local level here uh, in, in Southern California. And let's talk about Joe Biden for another minute here. I think we're assuming that these uh, lawsuits that the Trump administration and the Republicans are bringing are not really going to get anywhere. The big problem to me is what is the remedy they seek? The votes are there to make Biden president. So there's no remedy that's going to change the total number of votes here. So really, we need to focus on Biden, Biden's Justice Department, Biden's attorney general. I can see uh, you have some concerns about this. I have some concerns because uh, the people in the street were marching about criminal justice reform. And we have two people at the top of the ticket for the Democrats who are not associated with criminal justice reform. Although, you know, now we'll see how they're going to respond to uh, some of the the, the, the uh, pressure from the grassroots who put them in office in some critical places around the country. Um, but I'm, I'm just chasing the little, um, John, by remembering 92 and the elation that was felt around Clinton coming into office. And then he turned around, that's where the 94 crime bill came from. He took the scissors to that social safety net program, FDR's welfare as we know it. He, you know, like only um, Nixon could go to China. It took a Democrat to come in and take the scissors to that program. We won't talk about labor and NAFTA and all the rest. So I, 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 I wait, I worry, I wonder about the policy. I wanna see the policy first. And one thing we saw here in LA is that you know, there's no cult of social identity. Jackie Lacey was a black woman who was unseated by somebody who was not uh, a black person, but who represented black interests better than the, the person whose social identity was black woman. And so we, I think, you know, sophistication beyond the politics of pigmentation is certainly what we've seen on the ground here locally in LA. And I think it's gonna be a growing sophistication across the nation. Jody Armour. His new book is N-Word Theory. Jody, it's been great talking to you today. Always, John. Thank you. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Next up, Ella Taylor with Virus Time Television Viewing. Ideas about what to watch while we stay at home this week. Ella, of course, is a longtime film critic and writer whose work has appeared in The New York Times, The L.A. Weekly, and at NPR.org. We reached her today once again at home in Santa Monica. 
Ella, welcome back. Thank you, John. I have a purring kitten on my lap who um, will doubtless contribute to the discussion. <laughs> that sounds, sounds wonderful. What can you suggest for us this week? Well, I have a docu-thriller. Um, that's how it describes itself, and it's quite right about that. Um, it's a Romanian documentary directed by Alexander Nanau, who has lived in, in both Romania and uh, in Germany. And it's this extraordinary story that has, the title has a double meaning. Um, in 2015, there was a terrible fire, um, devastating fire in an underground night, uh, Bucharest um, nightclub. Uh, which was called Collective, uh, and was very critical of the government, not that that has a role to play in the fire. Um, but uh, what does have a role is the fact that it was it had zero protective equipment. 27 people were, were killed on the spot, and Ooh. the survivors... Uh, all of them young, of course, because it was a young, it was a nightclub. <laughs> um, and the authorities promised that the survivors, many of whom were terribly badly burned, um, would receive care in their hospitals that was, quote, unquote, better than that of Germany, uh, hmm. as, as we know, an excellent healthcare system. And the film is a collaboration. It's kind of a David and Goliath story. It's a collaboration between the filmmakers and a very tiny band of journalists from a sports daily <laughs> mm. um, who pursue, very doggedly pursued a lead that they had in which it was said that um, a very wealthy CEO of uh, a pharma CEO, P-H-A-R-M-A-A, maybe he was a farmer as well, um, <laughs> Who, supplied, uh, who was supplying Romanian hospitals with a disinfectant that he had diluted 10 times, tenfold. Mm. As a result of which, a bunch of these younger people um, died of horrible bacterial infections while they were being treated in the hospital. And so the question was whether the hospital knew, whether the government knew what he was doing, Weirdly, he died mysteriously in a car crash after the initial revelations, apparently of, a, of suicide. Um, that'll make clear whether, in any event, it was a mysterious death. So um, the journalists and the filmmakers who were filming along with them decided to pursue this, this, which became a much bigger story of government incompetence, uh, malign neglect, and the lack of oversight over a totally malfunctioning healthcare system. Now, that may sound boring. Don't go away. Because <laughs> it's incredibly thrilling. Um, we see, first of all, most heartbreakingly, the parents um, of the kids who had died, you know, who are... Um, helping with the, helping with inquiries, shall we say? Uh, we see one um, terribly badly burned young woman who was clearly very beautiful uh, before she was so badly burned, 
who agreed um, to cooperate uh, because she said, you know, here, this is how I look these days. This is how I am. Her story becomes an art exhibit um, and uh, helped along a popular uprising, something that the Romanians do quite often. But in this case, it led to the revelations um, led to the resignation of the health minister, um, who was a terrible prevaricator, who just, you know, would not uh, not confess to anything, even when the evidence um, was put in front of him. And the evidence is sometimes quite graphic because here there were um, patients lying in a hospital with maggots crawling through Yikes. Um, their burns. Uh, it must be seen, nonetheless. Um, he the astonishing thing about the movie is that that health minister was replaced by a former um, patients' rights activist named Vlad Viokolescu, um, who allowed the filmmakers into the inner workings of his office. <laughs> which imagine, um, and so um, gradually. Uh, this becomes the story of uh, of the expose of an expose of of government corruption. Some doctors, uh, one doctor came through as a whistleblower and was soon joined by some other doctors who said that the you know the hospitals are working with uh, terrible equipment. This is also by by implication a story about. Um, wealthy capitalists in the years after the uh, fall of the Iron Curtain and the Soviet Union, um, of which Romania was a satellite, uh, who have gotten away with murder in a largely un unregulated uh, capitalist empires. And he was one of them. And it tells a most extraordinary story. I was put in mind of a fictional story that was based on reality that became a celebrated movie named called Four Months, Three Weeks and Two Days that was made by the Romanian director Christian Mungiu. I actually wrote the Criterion essay for the, um, for the DVD and I believe it's available on the Criterion channel as well, which is about an attempt to, get, to gain an abortion by a young college student. It's also a marvelous film, so I would recommend that and uh, Collective, which really is a thriller of sorts. And there's something terribly endearing about it because it was a sports daily <laughs> and they had almost no tech available uh, except for their laptops to, you know, to go ahead with this. Um, it's a, a, a man named Cataline uh, Tolentan and his collaborator, who's this rather... Um, depressed looking woman except that she's completely galvanized by having finally got a great story on their hands they know they deserve a nobel um and there have been some reforms since but i don't know how much now i understand this is not a new made for tv documentary this was a feature film that was made the round won many awards at festivals and was a academy award nominee i think Two years ago, I had never heard of it, but where can we see it now? Actually, almost everywhere. Um, it, it's going, it, you know, you can see it on Amazon, iTunes, Vudu, and YouTube, and a whole bunch of others. It's made by, you know, by, uh, it was produced by Participant Media, which is a company that does an, an awful lot of good 
uh, agitprop uh, films. They they made Spotlight, and um, uh, it's it really is a tremendously good film, which I, I highly recommend. So if we if we want to get away from documentaries about the horrible things that happen in this world, if we want to go into the world of drama, can you recommend something? Yes, we can leave Earth altogether, which might not be a bad idea right now. <laughs> um, in a film uh, that's also available all over the place uh, called Proxima, and this one kind of fell through the cracks. A really wonderful little film by the made by the French woman director Alice Winnecourt. Um and uh, it tells the story of a woman astronaut who uh, is in training, you know, to, for her first flight, uh, first mission. She is played by the very good uh, French actress Eva Green, who is best known on this side of the Atlantic for being a Bond girl in the Bond girl in Casino Royale. She's astonishingly beautiful. Um, she's got black hair and blue eyes and looks a little bit like Jennifer Connelly. Um, she's uh, Breton and Swedish on one side and Sephardic Jewish on her mother's side and comes from a very artistic family and she's a really good actress. She was also in the film uh, Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children, uh, which was a Holocaust story for young adults. And here she's playing uh, a fairly young woman, a, a single parent of one daughter who um, is in training. Uh, and by way of plot, I can only tell you that the launch pad is the final scene, not the first. Okay. This is really a kind of a, almost a procedural. The director went to Star City and um, uh, studied a great deal. It's really about the uh, preparation process as experienced by one of the you, the few women astronauts. It's all about the rigors of training, the need to prove herself, the constant sexism um, practiced upon her by none other than Matt Dillon, who's <laughs> very, very good um, okay. as this kind of red-blooded uh, astronaut who becomes actually um, one of her... Um, biggest fans and a, and a friend, uh, given that they both parent. And there's, so there's lots of tech and there's lots of uh, stress, but the most, uh, really what the film is about is the back and forth of uh, the relationship between the mother and her small daughter, which gets more and more fraught during the process of training as, the, as her departure gets closer. She boards her daughter out. The daughter has a carer um, who is connected with the, um, the astronaut um, outfit, uh, who's very wonderful. But she's boarded out with her, uh, the mother's ex-husband, who's played by the, um, I believe, German actor, uh, Lars Eidinger. Maybe, no, maybe he's not German. I'm not sure. But he was in um, Berlin Babylon. He plays the evil uh, yeah, he's got a face made to play a lifetime of villains, poor guy, but he's very, very good. And he's a somewhat distant father and detached who is forced to, um, to pay attention to his daughter as she's with him. So there's a lot of guilt, a lot of anger, a lot of uh, longing, and a very complicated kind of redemption for the mother and the daughter, which is a kind of a coming of age for both of them. 
And that process is really what makes the the fascination of the movie. Um, it's not at all like a TV movie in which there is progress towards everything's going to be all right, dear. And anyway, I'm a feminist going up into space. <laughs> not like that at all. Um, so, uh, you know, as a parent, I could relate. You know, the, the, this case is very extreme because the mother's not just going abroad. She's leaving the planet. For um, a year. For a year. Isn't that for right? For a year. Yeah, uh, and uh, so the 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 process of adjustment is done with such wisdom, complexity, and tough-mindedness. It's not linear and it's not progressive, except in the sense that they there's a kind of detente between the mother and the little girl um, that is just fascinating. So I recommend that one um, highly too. And where is Proxima playing? Also all over the place. Um, finally, it's getting its due. Um, Amazon Prime, Netflix, uh, iTunes, and uh, a whole bunch of others. So um, I think both those films are also opening in a bunch of LA theaters. I don't know which, but for most of our listeners, it's going to be, it's very well worth streaming. A wonderful performance from Eva Green there. A moment left for one more. One more is a... A granny thriller is the only <laughs> way I can <laughs> describe him. Uh, describe it. It's um, a movie called "Let Him Go," um, which is directed by Thomas Bazuha. It's going to be he's and written by him. It's a thriller about two older, um, an older couple who are played by Kevin Costner and Diane Lane. So we are talking pedigree here. They live on a ranch in Montana and they lost their adult son under great, uh, very traumatic circumstances. So uh, we're there again. Um, and the son's widow married a very dubious character who Diane Lane wit witnesses actually um, uh, bullying both his wife and her little boy. So uh, they, the, the widow and, and her husband take off to visit his family uh, who live off grid, off the grid in, in, Dakota, in South Dakota. And um, Kevin Costner and Diane Lane do not see what's happening as good. So they take off after them to try and uh, visit their grandson, who's very tiny, uh, and hopefully to, to bring him back home. When the movie starts, it seems to be one of those loss of a child weepies. But in short order, it turns into a very efficient horror movie. Um, the matriarch of the widow's husband who has she seems to have a large flotilla of very awful sons is played and it took me a minute to recognize her by the British actress Leslie Manville who was the Mrs. Danvers character and Phantom Threads and just one of the best actresses in the world and she really runs with this role as the you know um, sadistic matriarch of a bunch of sadistic sons so um, what you were expecting doesn't happen. It turns into this um, all-out existential fight that's actually pretty in um, intelligently handled. And how do we see Let Him Go? 
Well, this is interesting. It looks like a, an attempt at a new release pattern. <clears throat> right now, you can only see it in theatres, but you can see it in a lot of theatres um, across the Los Angeles area. For example, a bunch of uh, AMCs in Fullerton, um, Thousand Oaks, and a bunch of other places, and a bunch of other cinemas. If you go online, you can... Um, you can find it. And when I pushed them to see whether it was going to stream, they were very cagey about this, which I think means that they want to try and keep it in theatres for as long as possible. If you are up for going to a theatre, um, it is worth seeing, but I suspect we are going to see it on some streaming, streaming channel and pl other platforms uh, pretty soon. They just won't tell me which. <laughs> So we've also talked about Collective, the award-winning documentary about corruption in Romania, and Proxima, the drama about the woman astronaut and her eight-year-old daughter. Both of those are streaming on all of the usual platforms. Ella Taylor, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, John. A pleasure as always. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, and our producer, Renee Reynolds. As always, we thank Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed part of the show or of any of our recent shows, listen online anytime you want at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.